Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. It's Luke chapter 13, starting at verse 22. Then Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, are only a few people going to be saved? He said to them, make every effort to enter through the narrow door, because many, I tell you, will try to enter and will not be able to. Once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you will stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from. Away from me, all you evildoers. There will be weeping there and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham, Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves thrown out. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. Indeed, there are those who are last who will be first and first who will be last. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. He replied, go tell that fox, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day, for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those sent to you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Well, we've just uh, sung a great prayer and uh, that is um, my prayer and I guess our prayer this evening. I, um, I've had one of those really frustrating days. I went to bed last night thinking, brilliant, an extra hour in bed. In fact, I said to Caroline, I'm going to get up at the same time anyway, but you know, psychologically, an extra hour, which was fantastic and then managed to wake up at five o'clock and couldn't get back to sleep. So I feel as if I'm about ready for bed now, and I guess some of you do too, because it seems a lot later than... um, What what time is it? Seven o'clock. It feels about, I don't know, half past ten, which is time to turn in. So let me pray that I'd stay awake um, while I preach, and that you would as well. Father, we do pray very much that you'd help us to be very attentive to the important things uh, that we see in your word this evening. And we ask it for your name's sake and for our good. Amen. Well, do please turn. This will help you to stay awake. Uh, Have a look at uh, Luke chapter 13 uh, and verses 22 and following the reading that Ali read for us earlier. It's page 1047, 1047 in the Church Bible. I, uh, I guess I'm like most people. I love good food. Fortunately, I'm married to a great cook, so I, I enjoy delicious food every day. But it's just up to me. It wouldn't be great. Uh, but Caroline cooks wonderful meals for us every day. 
But one meal stands out above all the other meals that I've ever eaten in my 52 and three quarter years on this planet. It was 17 years ago at a swanky restaurant in London's West End. As a thank you gift, I'd been given a voucher for £100 to dine at a place called The Sugar Club. I'd never heard of it before. And to give you some idea of the place, let me tell you that Caroline and I had no starter, no wine, just a main course each and only one dessert between us and still we had no change from the voucher. It was by far the most expensive meal that we have ever eaten, but for both Caroline and I, it was the most delicious meal we have ever tasted. Amazing food, brilliant company in a relaxed environment. It was a perfect evening. Now, I tell you that because in this section of Luke's Gospel, Jesus speaks often about a great banquet. And not just any old banquet, but the greatest feast anyone could ever enjoy, better even than the Sugar Club in the West End of London. You don't have to look it on, but you'll see in a couple of weeks in chapter 14, Jesus tells a parable about that great banquet. If we were to go on into chapter 15, he tells a story about two sons. And when the younger lost son returns home to the father's house, they celebrate by, fattening, uh, by, by killing the fattened calf and enjoying a great feast, another great banquet. And here in chapter 13 and verse 29, Jesus speaks of people taking their place at that feast in the kingdom of God. This banquet is the, the very first thing God's people will enjoy when his kingdom comes in all its fulfilment. Jesus describes that feast in our passage today. Look at chapter 13, verse 29. People will come from east and west and north and south and will take their places at the feast in the kingdom of God. It is this first moment in eternity. It will be better than anything that we've ever experienced in our entire lives. There will be great food spread out on this most lavish banqueting table. And we'll be enjoying the most terrific company. Around the table, there'll be people like, do you see it there, verse 28? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and, and the prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Malachi, they'll all be there. And with them, there'll be people from all over the world, verse 29, from east and west, from north and south. So seated there, we'll not only enjoy the most sumptuous food we've ever tasted, but with it, we'll enjoy the richest conversation that we have ever had. We'll be talking with people from every period of history and from every part of the globe. And there'll be one great topic of conversation. Everyone who's there will be excitedly talking about the Lord Jesus who saved us to get us there and our Heavenly Father who welcomed us into his house. More than that, we'll not just be talking about God, we'll be in his presence. He'll be there. It will be absolutely brilliant and not to be missed. And that's the reason Jesus describes this wonderful moment so that we won't miss it, so that we will feel what a catastrophe it would be to miss out. See, in verse 28, Jesus speaks of people weeping and grinding their teeth. That's that kind of feeling of overwhelming regret as they, as it were, peek in through a window and see others at the banqueting table and they're left out in the cold, shut out forever. See, in these two verses, verses 28 and 29, we see the very most wonderful experience for all who are there at the banquet, saved for all eternity, and at the same time, the most devastating moment of crushing regret for all those who are not allowed in. 
Now, that is bad enough just to say that. But what is most shocking and surprising about this section of Luke's gospel is who it actually is who is outside looking in, feeling that sense of crushing regret. Come back with me to the beginning of the passage in verse 22. Jesus went through the towns and villages, teaching as he made his way to Jerusalem. Uh, On his way to Jerusalem, it means Jesus is on his way to the cross to die. That's what was going to happen in Jerusalem. And here, as he makes his way on his way to die, Jesus is teaching people. He's teaching them about the cross that he's going to and how they can be saved, to use the language of this passage. Teaching them that that although they don't deserve it, he loves them and he's going to die in their place, taking the punishment that they deserve for their rebellion against God. And we know Jesus was teaching about this because someone in the crowd asked Jesus, verse 23, Lord, are only a few going to be saved? You see, that's what he was talking about. So somebody says, only a few? How many people will be in the new heavens and the new earth for eternity? How many people are going to enjoy that great banquet? It's going to be a lot of people or just a few, Lord. Can you tell me? I don't know, maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you've wondered that yourself. Thought about that kind of question. It's a fascinating question. Well, it's not important at all. And I know it's not important because Jesus didn't answer it. In verse 24, rather than speak about how many people will be saved, he says, make sure that you are saved. See, Jesus Jesus says, verse 24, make every effort to enter through the narrow door because many, I tell you, will try to enter it and will not be able to. Make sure that you don't miss out on the wonderful eternity that Jesus can give you. Don't find yourself shut out, excluded from an eternal experience that begins with this great banquet and then, frankly, just goes on and gets better and better and better and better. See it there, verse 24, make every effort, do everything you can to be sure that you're in the kingdom of God. For nothing, absolutely nothing in life is more important than this. It's really frustrating that people don't see it this way. Very often people who say they're thinking seriously about Jesus Christ don't make much effort. Do you find that? So I invite people to Christianity Explored or to church and they don't come. I suggest a book that they might read on an issue that they say is a sticking point for them and they don't read it. I'll never forget leading a Christianity Explored group when I was in London and the husband of one couple who seemed to be thoroughly enjoying the course didn't come back for week four. He'd enjoyed the first three weeks. His wife came back and I said, oh, sorry, he's not here. Is he okay? He's tiling the bathroom, she said. And week five, he didn't come back. And week six, he's still tiling the bathroom. And it's not funny. It breaks my heart to think tiling the bathroom was more important than the things of eternity. Verse 24, Jesus says, make every effort. And again, put it into its context of the chapter. He's saying, don't put it off. There needs to be an urgency when we're dealing with the things of eternity. We saw that two weeks ago, if you weren't here. At the beginning of chapter 13, Jesus spoke about two national tragedies that had left ordinary people dead. Just as we've seen too many times in the news in these last weeks, people in the wrong place at the wrong time suddenly find their lives cut short. And that happened in Jesus' day, and he said, when you hear about that kind of tragedy, take it as a warning. Do you remember that two weeks ago? We don't have forever to get these things sorted out. Make every effort to be sure that you're saved, he says. 
Because, says Jesus, there'll come a time when it is too late. Verse 25, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you'll stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. This is very clear and emphatic. From the lips of Jesus, there will come a time when people will be shut out of God's kingdom and that decision will never be reversed. Jesus is very clear here. No second chance beyond death. Now that is arresting enough, but what is most shocking about these verses is what comes next. See who it is who's left out. Again, verse 25, once the owner of the house gets up and closes the door, you'll stand outside knocking and pleading, sir, open the door for us. But he will answer, I don't know you or or where you come from. Then you will say, we ate and drank with you and, and, and you taught in our streets. But he will reply, I don't know you or where you come from, away from me. Do you see why this is so shocking? Those shut out and excluded from this eternal banquet are not atheists or Christian antagonists. They're not ardent opponents of Jesus Christ. Those people will be shut out. We wouldn't be surprised to hear that. Now, the shock here is that many who are shut out are and who are pleading to be let in are those who, verse 26, ate and drank with Jesus and listened as he taught on their streets. They're people who wouldn't call them op- themselves opponents of Jesus Christ. They hung out with Jesus and they hung out with those who hung out with Jesus and they listened to Jesus' teaching. In so many ways, they are people just like you and me. That's what's so surprising. But end of verse 25, Jesus said, I don't know you or where you come from. And he repeats it in verse 27. I don't know you or where you come from. And that is the big issue here. Jesus never knew them. I love tennis. Uh, I'm not very good at it. And that is not false humility. The coach is here. So he can tell you that I'm really rubbish. In fact, I was playing on Friday afternoon and he walked past at just the time when I dumped a, a, another backhand in the net. I'd like to say I don't do it very often, but actually it didn't surprise him at all. So I'm not very good at it, but I do like playing it. And I love following the best players in the game and the best British players. I'm, I know their rankings and their sponsors. I know if they're married or not, if they have children or not. Look, I could go on, but I won't because I'm boring you silly and because I'm rapidly sounding like a sad old boy who needs to get out more. My point is this. I know loads about these tennis stars. But when I'm next at Wimbledon, I've just put in my ballot paper for next year, so I'm hoping I'll be there next year. When I'm next at Wimbledon, if I see Roger Federer or Novak Djokovic or Andy Murray about to go into the exclusive players' restaurant, and I shout out, Roger, Novak, Andy, can we have lunch together? If I said to Murray, Andy, how's Kim and the pregnancy? How's that going? And how's your mum? Judy, what a great woman, done a lot for British tennis. And, oh, I hear Jamie's getting a new doubles partner. If that were to happen... You know where this is going, don't you? If that were to happen, Andy Murray will probably ignore me because he's a bit of a moody, sullen Scotsman. No, no, he'd, <laughs> he'd probably ignore me, quite rightly treating me like a sad old boy who needs to get out more, needs to get a life. But if he did bother to reply to my pleading to have lunch with him in the exclusive players restaurant, he's going to say, I don't know you or where you come from. And then he'll walk off leaving me outside. You see, the test of whether I really know someone, whether I'm really in a meaningful relationship with them, is whether they know me. 
None of us are in a relationship with someone because we know about them. That's true of tennis players or pop idols or politicians or soap stars or Jesus Christ. Think about it. Of course, it's easy to know about Jesus. He's the most famous person who ever lived and walked on this planet. He's so important that he split the whole of time in two, AD and BC. We have an authorised and comprehensively authoritative biography about him. Not to mention the thousands of other books that people have written about him and the millions of people who've hung on his every word down through the past two millennia. Of course we can know about him and his teaching. So we must not equate knowing about Jesus with knowing him and being in a relationship with him. But you see, knowing him could not be more important. Because while not being known by Andy Murray will mean I won't get a free lunch with him at Wimbledon, not being known by Jesus will keep me out of the most wonderful eternal banquet and out of his eternal new creation forever. And again, the shock here is that the very same people who hung out with Jesus and the people who listened to his teaching are the people who are shut out. And Jesus says to them, I don't know you. I never knew you. Look, I reckon these verses uh, 25, 26, 27 highlight a real danger of what I might call social Christianity. This is the danger of people who are involved with God's people who, who go to church, who listen to Jesus' teaching, but who aren't in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, look, it can happen across any church congregation, it can happen with people of any age, and it does. But let me tell you one situation where it's easily identified. And that is when people go off to university. See, we see young people here fully involved in the terrific youth work here. Fully involved on Sundays in small groups, helping out around the place. But then some of them, when they go off to uni, drift away. And when you talk to them, it turns out that they were never really in relationship with Jesus Christ. They were associated with his people. They heard his teaching. But they didn't even ever really know him. What actually kept them coming along every week, week by week, was not a love for Jesus, but the social dynamic of being here with all these terrific people. And so it looks as if they were saved, to use Jesus' language, but they weren't. And then once they're out of this social context, they drift off. And while we see that very obviously working itself out as people go to uni, it's true of all ages. So don't just look over in this corner and say, watch out, you lot. It's true of all of us. can be. That's the danger that Jesus is talking of here. Verse 26, people who ate and drank with Jesus and his people, people who listened to his teaching but who weren't in relationship with Jesus Christ. So that's the big question here. Not just do you know Jesus in, in the fact that you know about him, but do you really know him? Does he know you? I, I've got to say, as I've studied this this week, I found myself unnerved. I've asked myself that question. It's been a bit unsettling. If you're feeling that way, can I say, good, not because I want you to feel unnerved and unsettled, but because I think that's what this passage is supposed to do. Because there's nothing more important. There's no more important question you can ask 
Jesus says eternity hangs on this answer. How can I be in relationship with God? Not just know about him, but really know him. It's all to do with the cross. Remember verse 22, that's what Jesus was heading towards. He's going to Jerusalem and that's what he was teaching about. And Jesus was so focused on his death on the cross that nothing could stop him. We see that later on in the passage. Look down to verse 31 with me. After all this teaching, some people didn't like it and the religious establishment didn't like it and the Pharisees particularly didn't like it and they wanted him out of town. Look what they say. Verse 31, at that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, leave this place, go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. Now, don't think that they're being kind and saying, oh, by the way, Herod's out to get you, you better go. No, no, no. They want him out of the place and they're reminding him to get out because Herod's guys are coming. But Jesus is not frightened by those murderous threats of King Herod. He was resolutely heading through Jerusalem to his death. It's hard to, uh, it's hard to, um, to scare somebody with death when, when they're heading towards their death. He was on a mission to save men and women and nothing would distract him from that task. So he says to the Pharisees, verse 32, tell that fox, Herod, I will drive out demons and heal people today and tomorrow and on the third day I'll reach my goal. In any case, I must keep going today and tomorrow and the next day for surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. So he's talking about his death. And he says, until I get to Jerusalem, until I die, I'm going to continue overturning the effects of living in this evil world. I'm going to keep heading to Jerusalem and to the cross where I'll finally defeat death and sin and Satan. And as he thinks of Jerusalem where he will die, he goes on and says this, verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those, who sent, uh, those sent to you, how often I've longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings but you were not willing. This is an amazing verse, such tenderness here from Jesus. Jerusalem had a centuries-long reputation for killing God's prophets. The Lord God sent his prophets to Jerusalem to warn them and to tell them to turn back to him, and the people of Jerusalem, time after time, murdered them. So you might think that Jesus is heading to Jerusalem to bring judgment upon the city because that's what they deserved But our God is a God of grace. He doesn't want to give people the punishment they deserve. He loves people. He loves you and me. He loves even those who've rebelled against him. And so here is beautiful in verse 34. Jesus likens himself to a mother hen wanting to gather her chicks under her wings to protect them, to keep them safe from any danger. That's precisely why Jesus is going to Jerusalem, not to bring judgment upon Jerusalem, but to go to the cross, to bring the protection of the gospel of grace, even to those who've rejected him. Because it's through his death on the cross that we can come into a real and meaningful relationship with God, not just knowing about God, but knowing him personally. Just this week, I read the story of Sergeant John Rains from, from Healy, just down the road in Sheffield. Just over 100 years ago, he was serving on the Western Front. It was on the 11th of October, 
uh, his unit came under intense attack. And Sergeant Rains ran out from his own battery, not once, but three times. Three times he ran for 40 metres. Remember the First World War. Just think what that meant. Three times he ran 40 metres and then back again to assist and then bring back a wounded colleague called Sergeant Ayres. Sergeant Rains risked his life to save a fellow British soldier. It was a remarkable act of bravery. But Jesus Christ did something far more amazing. He didn't just risk his life. Jesus willingly and deliberately gave his life. And he didn't just give his life, but he gave his life for his enemies. He died to save us from God's righteous judgment. And he did it because Jesus knew that his death was the only way we could be brought into relationship with God and into the eternal salvation that would begin with a marvellous banquet. See, if there were many ways to God, do you think he'd have died on the cross? No, he only went to the cross because there was no other way. We know that because later on in Luke's gospel, if you want to look it up later in chapter 22, just before he was arrested, Jesus prayed this. He said, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will but yours be done. Jesus didn't want to go through the suffering of death on a cross and separation from his father. But there was no other way to bring us into relationship with God. And that's why he said in verse 24 of our passage, make every effort to enter through the narrow door. His sacrificial death is the narrow door. It is the only way, that's the point. There aren't many ways to get into the kingdom of God. That's really countercultural. It was back then and it is still today. Religious people don't want to enter through the narrow door of Jesus and his death. We heard about that last week. Some say there are many ways to God. They say you can come to God through different religions or through being a good person. Last week we were hearing the religious establishment of Jesus' day teaching that you could get right with God through keeping all the rules. But we saw how depressing that is. Because I can't keep the rules, and I know you can't either. Many in the church today, though, are saying exactly the same thing. You don't need Jesus' death on the cross. You need to keep the rules. Well, if that's it, I'm going to give up. I'm not coming back next week because I can't do it. Listen, if we could be saved through religious rule-keeping or through being good moral people or through some other religion... What did Jesus die for? He didn't need to die then, did he? No, his death on the cross is the only way to be saved, the only way into relationship with God, the only entrance into the heavenly eternity which begins with this wonderful banquet. It's a narrow door. It's the only way. That's all that that means. It's not difficult to get in. It's just that it's the only way. See, if you're trying to get right with God through being good or religious, then he will say, I never knew you. And if you believe that there are many ways to God, then you are denying his sacrificial death as the only way, and he will say, I never knew you. 
And if you enjoy hanging out with Christians and listening to Jesus' teaching, but you don't have a real relationship with Jesus, on the final day, he will say, I never knew you. And you'll be shut out from his presence for all eternity. But that isn't what Jesus wants for you or me. He did everything to bring us into relationship with him. He did everything that we might be part of this wonderful banquet that will begin eternity. And then we'll just carry on and get better and better. So make every effort to enter through the narrow door. Don't be shut out. Where, verse 28, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Deep regret. My final thought. I've done, um, I've done some things in my life that I deeply regret. There's one thing in particular that I'm so mightily ashamed of. I've done something that is irreversible. Something I can never undo. If I could, I would turn the clock back and I would do things differently, but I can't. And I want to tell you that feeling of regret is the most terrible experience. But just imagine having that sense of regret for eternity. Because you didn't make the effort to enter through the narrow door. Jesus wants to rescue us from that. And he's done everything possible. Let's pray together. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for the remarkable love that you have for your people. Thank you for the remarkable love you have for people who've turned away from you. People like me and people like the people in front of me. Thank you very much for the death of the Lord Jesus. That one true perfect sacrifice. The death that brings us back into relationship with you that we may know you not only now but for eternity. Thank you for your love towards us. And we ask you to make sure, to help us to make sure that we make every effort. And then please, Heavenly Father, when we've made the effort and when we've entered through the narrow door, to tell others to make the effort, that they too may come in and enjoy this wonderful thing called forgiveness and the kingdom of God for eternity. Amen.